But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites up out of Egypt? He said, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. But Moses said to God, If I come to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my title for all generations. Let us pray together. Almighty God, you are the source of all wisdom, knowledge, and goodness. May your Holy Spirit open our hearts and minds today and work in it, in and through us. Bless us in this time, and may only truth be spoken and only truth received. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. When one exits the London Underground at Westminster Station, it's easy to be overcome with the grand sight before you. You stand in front of two magnificent Gothic structures. (laughs) The Palace of Westminster almost immediately before you, and uh, the bell, t- uh, which houses you know, the bell tower, enclosing uh, Big Ben, it houses the houses of Parliament, uh, and uh, Westminster Abbey, just to your right. Uh, you immediately feel the smallness of such greatness uh, when, when you're standing before those two And if you step inside Westminster Abbey, the feeling of smallness amid grandeur is even more compounded. The very architecture itself is meant to draw our eyes heavenward and to signal to us that we are standing in the presence of God. You feel very small. It's it's overwhelming. I experienced this four years ago, and it was was one of the more life-changing experiences of my life. Uh, And, uh, of course, you guys know me by now. There's there's nothing uh, I enjoy more than truly beautiful art. And yet, for all the wondrous beauty of those towering buildings, that great Gothic architecture, perhaps the smallest I've felt and most in awe of God, has been standing on a beach of a South Georgia island in the dark of a moonless night during my senior year of college, staring up at a million stars stretched out above the vast ocean. It went on forever. For Moses, the awe comes not from towering buildings nor the cathedral of the heavens, 
But from a solitary bush, a light with a holy, with a holy blaze yet undestroyed. The story of this remarkable encounter shows us many things. But there are four observations I'd like to make today about God's character. And as revelatory as these four observations are here today uh, to, to the people of the Old Covenant, the people of Israel, they take on e- an even greater significance for us people of the new covenant, the people of Christ. Observation one, God is holy, but he uses the humbled. God tells Moses to come no closer, to take off his sandals because he is standing on holy ground. Sandals removed, hiding his face out of fear. Moses sits, Moses stands there completely exposed and vulnerable in the presence of holiness. And there, the God of the universe speaks to this runaway murderer. No, we need not forget that Moses, in the last chapter, has killed an Egyptian and fled from Pharaoh's wrath to Midian, where he has now lived for many years. That very sin-stained exile now stands enveloped by God's holiness. And just as the bush is not consumed by the holy fire of God, somehow neither is Moses. In fact, God says he is going to use Moses. This Egyptian adopted Hebrew with a criminal record and, as the next chapter would suggest, even a lack of public speaking skills to lead all of Israel out of Egypt. Moses rightly replies, who am I to do this? And God doesn't give him some speech saying, oh, Moses, you're special. You're better than you give yourself credit for. I believe in you. (laughs) No, God doesn't challenge Moses at all on his suitability for the task. Moses, like all of us, is far from perfect. We all, after all, fall short of the glory of God. As so often happens, God works through the weak, the despised, or the outcast, those who have been brought low by their own circumstances. In the New Testament, we see this in Jesus' choice of apostles, rough-hewn fishermen, and a despised tax collector among them, and long after a resurrection, a Pharisee who had persecuted and murdered the church. It is by using these ragamuffins that the Lord's words to St. Paul when he prays for relief from his thorn in the flesh are most on display. My power is made perfect in weakness. Our weakness may be the thing that ends up sticking out to us most here in the season of Lent. When we intentionally recognize that we rely only on the Lord's provision. We may fast and give up luxurious foods 
to remind ourselves that he is our only sustenance. Further, if you're anything like me, there are always a few slip-ups with these Lenten goals, further emphasizing the point. Had some uh, demonic skittles at the movie theater. It's terrible. <laughs> I repent. And it was very expensive. <laughs> All of this humbles us, forcing us to recognize our own imperfect state and making us sure that what happened in Moses' scenario is always what must happen. God himself does the work. Observation number two, God is for us. Why, why does God do the work? Why is he here talking to Moses? Because he loves his people. He has compassion for his people. He says, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And these were a people already very prone to sinfulness, disobedience, and unfaithfulness. But God does not forget his one-sided covenant that he made with Abraham. The covenant he put Abraham to sleep for because he knew that the people of it, that, that his descendants were fallen people and unable to keep perfect faithfulness. He acts in love to save his people from captivity in Egypt. And for this very same love, he gives his only son to save us from captivity to sin and bless us with eternal life. Observation three. God is known to us. What kind of God are we dealing with here? Why should we trust him? Perhaps we, like Moses in this chapter, need assurance. Perhaps we, like Moses, are well aware of our own frailties and the hardship of the world around us. Who is this God to reassure us? The Israelites have been in Egypt for generations, surrounded by dozens of gods, and no one even knows this God's name. They only know that he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But here God reveals his very name to Moses and through him to the very people of God for the first time. God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, thus you shall say to the Israelites, 
the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. God's name, I am, invokes his very eternality. This is not some temporal God who has been created by the hands of men. This is the creator God who is and always has been. And likewise, something we often miss in our English translations is that when we read the Lord right there in that passage, that, that word is Yahweh. The covenant name of God used throughout the Old Testament, but which is first revealed to the people of Israel right here, and which Hebrew scholars tell us means roughly, uh, get into some uh, textual history that we just don't want to go into right now, uh, but, but it is roughly, he is. There is even a sense of being with, being present. One possible rendering uh, might be he is with his people. Our God is one who always was, always is, is to come, and who is fully present. God isn't finished revealing himself, though. When he reveals his name, his identity, to the people of Israel here at the burning bush, God has one more revelation of himself coming, though it will take a few more centuries. The first chapter of the Gospel of John tells us that it is Jesus Christ who has made God known. Jesus, the Word of God, has dwelt or tabernacled among us. What was spoken to Moses became flesh and blood in Jesus, and he claims it. In a heated discussion with the scribes and Pharisees later in John, Jesus explicitly claims the name of God, saying, Before Abraham was, I am. This phrasing is not an accidental grammatical error of someone who didn't learn their verb tenses in school. No, this is God incarnate claiming his own name, a blasphemy for anyone who wasn't Yahweh come in flesh. And later, in his glorious revelation to St. John, he makes abundantly clear, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, who was and is and is and who is to come, the Almighty. This is our God, our forever King, and he's not going anywhere. Observation number four, God is with us. God tells Moses, I will be with you. It is remarkable to have the God of the universe on your side. As we see, and we see this on full display over the next few chapters. Indeed, God is Israel's steady guide over the next 40 years in which they wander in the desert. One of the many episodes we recall in the 40 days of Lent. He leads them with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, feeding them with manna from heaven. 
However, as Christians, we not only stand in the presence of God with him going before us and guiding us, but we have what the Israelites did not, his very spirit inside of us. Because Christ died for us, rescuing us from sin and imparting his holiness to us, he could then send the Holy Spirit of God to dwell within us as our counselor. Something we will celebrate in just a couple of months at the Feast of Pentecost. While the Israelites spent 40 years with God, guiding them with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, with his bread from heaven as their sustenance, God guides us by placing his Holy Spirit inside of us and feeding us with Christ as our very bread of life, which we encounter in a special way even today here at the table. So what do we do with this? We preach to ourselves. I need to hear this even today. In those times when we feel discouraged or when the devil's lies speak to us that God doesn't love us, won't use us, or has outright abandoned us, we should find comfort here in the scriptures. The very God who loved the Israelites loves his church enough to endure death for her. The holy God who used a criminal exile to lead his people to freedom then used flighty fishermen, tax collectors, and a persecuting Pharisee to spread his gospel will use you and me today. The God who led the people out of Israel, people of Israel out of Egypt and guided them through the desert with a cloud by day and a fire by night now leads his people by placing his very Holy Spirit within us. And this very God reigns forever and ever because he is forever and ever, world without end. Amen.